Hi there, I'm Caroline Casper, and on behalf of the Equity Foundation and the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales, I'd like to welcome you to the Equity Foundation Health and Wellness Series. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations on which land we work. I live on Bidjigal land, and I would like to pay my respects to traditional owners of country all throughout our country, recognising their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land, and we would like to pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. A huge kia ora to our New Zealand counterparts. Thank you so much for joining us today. With the unique challenges facing the entertainment industries, indications are that we, as practitioners in the creative industries, are under serious mental health stresses. Our hope is that this series will go some way to understanding and developing tools to deal with the challenges that we face. Today's session is part two of a three-part series on anxiety and will run for approximately an hour. This is a pre-recorded session due to scheduling demands, so if you have any follow-up questions, please email us at info at equityfoundation.org.au and we will endeavour to get you your answers post this event. And now, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Julie Crabtree. Julie is the go-to person on health and well-being in the creative mind space. Her work with people in the creative industries draws on over 27 years of experience as a psychologist in both private practice and in organisations. She holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and her doctoral research into creativity and mental health means that she is at the forefront of our understanding of how to be both creative and healthy. By creative, we mean all of us who work within the creative industries, helping to tell stories that are essential to our way of being in the world, be it crew, cast, production. And so, without further ado, I would like to hand over to Dr. Julie Crabtree. I live on Garrigal land and acknowledge it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And in this second session on anxiety, we're going to be discussing the difficult waters of perfectionism. So I invite you to sort of sit down and in, enjoy this deep dive into a particularly difficult area of anxiety. So I want to kind of just review some of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of sessions. Just want to review uh, some of the material on what it means to be creative. This is from our understanding of research. And as I said before, in one column, it's how researchers discuss it. In the other column, it is how we like to discuss it. Um, so for example, we know that creative people have got what's called divergent thinking, rapid fluid thinking, able to make unique associations. They think fast. We call that fluid thought, and it's got huge implications for anxiety. Creative people are very exploratory, very novelty-seeking. We call it, from a research point of view, greater openness to experience or, or very open to different types of risk. The third thing is called reduced or low latent inhibition. Our preferred term for this is skinlessness, which means you're very sensitive to sensory information. You do life with one layer of skin missing. Again, it's got huge implications for anxiety. This kind of wonderful word that psycholo psychologists use called high neuroses, and it means you feel your own pain deeply 
and feel other people's pain deeply. And again, high neurosis is very associated with anxiety. So again, it's, it's got implications for what we're going to talk about today. Impulsive nonconformity, which just means that, you know, if, if one, somebody says to you, don't walk on the grass, you're probably going to try and walk on the grass. You will not do conformist things. And the last one is what researchers would call resistant to premature closure, or the fact that you're comfortable with complexity. We're talking about anxiety, and anxiety is this kind of persistent feeling of nervousness and worry, and a sense that something is going to happen. It's this kind of gnawing feeling that we have. So we've been talking about anxiety over these three sessions. The first one was overdriven thinking. This one is going to be perfectionism. And next session, we're going to be talking about catastrophic thinking or the type of thinking that happens when you've got an incredibly high imagination. I want to again revise what we talked about in terms of the difference between fear and anxiety. When, when we feel fear, like when a snake walks in the room, walks in the room, when a snake kind of may um, come into a room or we come upon a snake, we immediately have this rush of adrenaline and cortisol. And it's called the fight, fright, freeze response. And we have a resolution of it. We feel the fear and then it resolves. With anxiety, it's something different. There's this kind of response to this implied threat. It's very future focused. There's a lot of kind of what if scenarios. And often our threat is not the threat of a snake, but it's a threat of job, um, losing our job. It's a threat of a relationship. It's a threat of income. And so it's this kind of gnawing worry. And we often have a number of false alarms. The problem is with both fear and anxiety. It has a huge impact on how our body responds. So for example, as I said, when we experience the fear response, we have the production of adrenaline. Adrenaline has the impact of increasing our heart rate, our breathing rate. It takes all of our attention to our extremities, to our muscles, giving us what we need to be able to run or to fight. That's why it's called the fight, flight, freeze response. The cortisol has the impact of just basically speeding up our metabolism. We just kind of generally go into super drive. And it's great when we, we need to run away from a snake, but it's not so good when we've got this gnawing worry and threat about our job or about our relationship or about money and circumstances. So we talk about the fact that when there is this ongoing production of adrenaline and cortisol, it has this wear and tear on our system that we discussed last time as being called allostatic load. And it's just, it's just our body just gets worn down with the impact of the wear and tear in our system. So there's an awful lot of advantages for us to try and understand and manage our anxiety. So we're going to be looking at some of those things today. And we want to look at the type of underlying beliefs that may drive anxiety. And these are the three common beliefs that I've found in working with people over the years. One is associated with a, a belief that you're on the verge of experiencing something catastrophic. 
that you feel that you're vulnerable to bad things happening. The second one is that you believe that you're never good enough and must always strive harder. The third one is that you believe that you will eventually fail or will never perform as well as others, that kind of underlying fear of failure. We're going to talk about the one that really is, I, I think, a dominant belief system associated with anxiety. And this is the belief that you're kind of never quite good enough. It can be very associated with the idea of perfectionism. And if you have felt like people have said to you, oh, you're a perfectionist, or if you feel that that's maybe something that you associate with yourself, then you've probably got a belief system that is one of your drivers that may be associated with anxiety. We've had the privilege of interviewing Chloe Dallimore when she was president of equity. And she, in an extraordinary interview, talked about this very idea of perfectionism. I invite you to look at it now. Hi there, I'm Chloe Dallimore, and I'm currently the president of Actors' Equity in Australia. I am originally a dancer at heart, became a musical theatre performer, and I've worked in the industry of live performance for the last almost 25 years. Well, I, think, I think perfectionism comes from the place of wanting to do the right thing, wanting to deliver what everyone else is expecting. And, and just in that, we're going to disempower ourselves because we can't know what anyone else is expecting of us. And, and I honestly think, I, I think no one sets out to, to go, I'm going to be a perfectionist and I'm going to, you know, pull apart every detail and, until I drive myself to distraction. I think, it's, I think it's the underlying, and that's what's wonderful, is that underlying desire to do the right thing. And I think that's what we have to remind perfectionists, that intention is everything. If you're intending to do a good job, you can't do a bad job. As Mel Brooks says, you know, you don't, you don't play a moment, you just, you are a moment in a play, or you, um, so by actually forcing anything other than what is already innately in you is going to skew you away from, you know, your true, your true talent and your true ability. Perfectionism is absolutely trying to gain control. I was, um, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. And at 15, I was already almost the height I am now. So I was almost, you know, I was like five foot nine, five foot 10. I was never going to be back in the, you know, late 80s. I was never going to be. That was not the physique of a, you know, of a ballet dancer. Um, but I so desperately wanted to be a ballet dancer that I starved myself. And I was a 45 kilo, 15 year old because I'd heard my ballet teacher say, well, you know, if you're over 45 kilos, you'll never get in to full-time ballet. And so I went, well, I'll do that. I will be that 45 kilos. And then that takes that variable out. 
That was the only thing I could control. I couldn't control what anyone thought of my dancing, but I could control that 45 kilo mark. And I was told, oh, you know, you're such a perfectionist. I was like, well, I wasn't being a perfectionist. I was just trying to gain control of what I saw at 15 as being controllable. And I remember my <laughs> I remember my mum saying years later, she said, she said you'd, she said, I knew, I knew I had to support you in what you wanted to do because even though what you'd done to yourself was so terrible in terms of starving yourself, she said, you were doing it because you thought it was what was going to get you to that final point and you loved it so much. That was what you thought you needed to do. She didn't tell me that till years later, but I thought, what an extraordinary thing for a parent to have to witness as well. And so the mental health and the, and the health of all people in the creative arts is not just about the individuals, but it's also about the people around them and how they deal with those individuals struggling or trying to achieve their goals. So yeah, perfectionism is, is very complex, hugely complex. What did you notice as Chloe was talking about her eating disorder, the perfectionism, and of course the associated anxiety? We know that eating disorder is often very associated with a perfectionistic view of things, the need to control our environment in order to feel like we're, we're enough. And, and this again can also drive anxiety. So, we talked about this last time, we talked about the fact that if you think fast, if you are a fluid thinker, that you can easily kind of overthink, overdrive and become rigid and perfectionistic in your thinking. And so learning how to manage from that fluid thought to a more still and relaxed way of thinking. You can't stay on manic thinking and learning how to notice when your thinking, your fast thinking, drives into the perfectionism. Where you're working on a project, for example, you're working on a character or you're working on preparation. And there's that voice in your head that keeps on saying, well, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. It's the, that voice that's almost like this harsh bullying. Oh, that's stupid, you know, uh, just keep on going. You, you're just not good enough. Look, you made a mistake that time. And you, you push the natural fluid thinking, that fast thinking, the great thinking you need when you're doing improv work into this really driven, harsh, demanding, perfectionistic thinking. And we need to learn how to embrace our fluid thinking, our fast, rapid, making connection thinking, and to notice when we're moving into perfectionistic thinking. So let's look at the, again, the type of internal beliefs that will drive that. One of the, the best ways I have of thinking about perfectionistic thinking is this word called unrelenting standards. It's a great phrase. 
and it means that you have got very, very high, unrelenting, internalised standards of behaviour. I describe it as though you've got an internal ruler inside of you and you are constantly, constantly measuring yourself. And when you measure yourself, you are never good enough. You are never good enough. And um, I, I find people with the perfectionistic thinking do have this measurement mentality in their head. The relentless striving for extremely high standards, unreasonable standards for yourself and others that are personally demanding. It typically, to an outsider, these standards are considered to be incredibly unreasonable. And you judge your self-worth largely based on your ability to strive and achieve these unrelenting, unreasonable standards. There are negative consequences for having that belief system. But often when I talk about perfectionism with people, particularly those in the performance industry, what they say is that I am so rewarded. I am incredibly rewarded for my perfectionism, for my unrelenting standards. It can be uh, as they train, it can be for those who may be dancers, it can be uh, for others that got feedback that their perfectionism was an advantage, not a disadvantage. So we're going to look at the, the pros and cons of what it means to be a perfectionist, what, what the pros and cons of that unrelenting standards. And I would encourage you as you're listening to this to think about your own pros and cons of it. You like to do things well. And there's a difference between excellence and having a really great work ethic and having these unrelenting standards. You get pleasure out of achieving. You get a lot of feedback and affirmation for your achieving. You like to be efficient and organised. And the feeling that you need to be a perfectionist to succeed in the performance industry. The cons are, though, you have no free time. No achievement is ever good enough. One of the things that I ask is that, have you celebrated your achievements? Because the perfectionist, those with unrelenting standards, are never celebrate their achievements because they're never good enough. They blame themselves if things aren't done exactly right. I can't stand it when other people don't do things my way. So the, the perfectionist, those with unrelenting standards, not only do they have unrelenting standards for themselves, they have unrelenting standards for other people around them. And you pick up those unrelenting standards non-verbally. You know, those around you never feel good enough. In fact, there was a study that was very recently done, looked at the work performance of those with high perfectionism against those that didn't. There was no difference in the work performance. It's just that those who were perfectionist and those who work with perfectionists had greater wear and tear on them, had greater anxiety. You have to go um, over your work again and again for it to be perfect. I'm afraid of failing that I never get started. And this is often one of the byproducts, the evil twin of perfectionism is procrastination. Because why bother starting? Because nothing is ever going to be good enough for you. So you just procrastinate. I would like to invite you to have this idea and that is to be the best artist is not to be the most perfect. In fact, we know from a whole lot of broad work with the best artists are not the most perfect, they're often the most vulnerable. 
I would invite you to acknowledge the impact of your perfectionism and your unrelenting standards that has on you. First thing I would invite you to do is be aware. Be aware of it. Become aware of your perfectionism. Become aware of your unrelenting standards. And ask yourself in what context are you a perfectionist? A lot of people say to me, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a perfectionist, except in my work. I'm not a perfectionist, except in other circumstances. I, I can recall, and this is a, a long time ago, and this is with a musician. He was very relaxed. He lived in a car, but he would relentlessly and meticulously, with unrelenting standards, um, wind up his cables and wind up his gear. He was a perfectionist around that area of his, of his craft. What about for you? What area are you a perfectionist in? And I want to ask you the question, what's the cost? Because the difference between just being good at your work and being a perfectionist is that it involves impairment in health. And we talked about that in terms of your, um, the impact of anxiety. The wear and tear on your system of your unrelenting standards, the fact that you never let yourself sleep, you never let yourself rest, you are constantly just pushing yourself that little bit further. Must involve impairment in relaxation. You do not allow yourself to relax. In fact, I'm going to ask you, when was the last time you actually sat and completely relaxed and felt like you didn't have a list in your head of the things that you had to do? Sense of accomplishment, that because nothing is ever good enough, you, are never, you never feel like you're accomplishing. You, you get to this bar, you've always got another bar that you've got to go to. You can never accomplish enough. Satisfying relationships. Unrelenting standards has got huge implications for relationships because you not only demand things of yourself, you demand things of others. And it's really sometimes hard to be around you because it's exhausting and, and other people feel very judged. And relationships need time and attention and rest and connection. The perfectionist has no time for that. Difficulty slowing down. You know, are you the person that may crash into a holiday and spend most of their holiday recovering because you're exhausted? There's no permission to slow down. So I would invite you to reflect on the cost of being a perfectionist. And this is, I guess, the homework I would encourage you to do over the next week or so. I want you to set up a, a balance sheet because me talking to you is not going to convince you to begin to deconstruct your perfectionism, your unrelenting standards. I would invite you to do your own balance sheet of listing the personal cost that you expect if you loosen the grip of your unrelenting standards and perfectionism, and then a list of the benefits that you expect of loosening the grip of your unrelenting high standards. And I just, I just invite you to have those two lists in front of you. And over the next week or so, just write down the costs and write down the benefits. And it's like, like a balance sheet. Let's, let's, let's add it up at the end. Because research says that the cost physically, emotionally, in terms of anxiety and stress is so high with perfectionism. Research also says that you 
unlike the voice in your head that says you have to have it in order to succeed, in order to get somewhere in your industry, that in actual fact, those that are, are, have high standards, but not unrelenting standards, that strive to be, you know, to be excellent in their craft, but not rigid, not driven, not perfectionistic. They're the ones that do well. That, that it's the vulnerable who do well, rather than the driven perfectionistic that do well. So that's kind of your homework a little bit over, over this week or so. And we would invite you to do a behavioural experiment to loosen the grip of your perfectionism and help you to reach the goal by allowing you to test out your perfectionistic belief, which is, I have to have it in order to do well. So you're going to be like your own kind of behavioural scientist and you're going to check it out. And notice when you've got those driven, unrelenting thoughts. And I invite you to begin to change them, to challenge them, to test the accuracy of them. For example, if you have prepared for a role for an audition and you feel like you've done well, you know, you know it, you've, you've spent time preparing for it. This behavioural experiment invites you to lay it down, to do something restful, relaxing, self-caring, self-compassionate, and see how you perform compared to the unrelenting you who will go, no, it's not going to be good enough. I've got to keep on going. I've got to drive myself further. I've got to keep, keep on going. Is that you going to perform better? So this is the experiment that I want you to do. I would also encourage you to get hold of and look at any material from Brené Brown. She first began her research, she's a social researcher, an incredible communicator, and she first did research and wrote a book on the gift of imperfection. It's a very easy read, and it's an incredible journey of helping you un unpack your unrelenting standards help you notice and challenge them. Because one of the things that we also know is that being creative is intention with that driven, unrelenting, perfectionistic mentality. And she talks about that in the book. We're going to finish with an invitation to do a self-compassion exercise. And I talk about self-compassion because the unrelenting driven you is not self-compassionate. The unrelenting, demanding, perfectionistic you is not kind to yourself. It's harsh, it's a bully, it's rigid. It says nasty things about you in your head. So we're gonna start by practicing some self-compassion. One of the things that I, I get people to do is put their hand over their heart and over their gut. It's as a reminder, as a tactile reminder of self-compassion. It's like a mini hug. And I'd invite you to just, as you're sitting there, to close your eyes, to breathe in, have, have a couple of deep breaths. Breathing deep into your diaphragm and breathing out. And again, a couple more times. Breathing in. And breathing out. couple more times, breathing in deep into your diaphragm 
and breathing out. And as you breathe in, I want you to mentally say the words, I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm going to be compassionate to myself. I'm going to take rest when my body says I need rest. I'm going to learn to relax. I'm going to learn to develop a kind voice in my head that says I am enough as I am. I am going to begin to pull down the measurement in my head. And I'm going to remind myself every morning that I am okay just as I am. Get you to open your eyes again. With coming to the end of our session, just in summary, we understand that it's the negative internalized beliefs, that harsh, unrelenting standards that says that we're not good enough with the perfectionism that gives us our anxiety. Um, next session, we're going to look at the impact of our imagination and our catastrophic imagination on anxiety. So until next time. Thank you so much, Julie. That was so enlightening. Um, I have a little question, if, if that's okay. On the perfectionism train, when you do an audition and you have extreme, those unrelenting standards, what is the effect that you've seen on people when, because it's, you know, as we know, auditioning is, can be a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. Um, it's about so many things that are out of our control. Yes. So if you have these, if you have extreme unrelenting mm. standards, what can the effect be then if you don't book the gig, say, mm. or you don't get the job? How mm. does, how, in your experience, how does that affect people and what are some of the things that they, are, can do to help them mm. get through that. Mm. And I think the first thing is to recognise that your unrelenting standards are not going to help you either get the part or not get the part. Mm. An example would be, imagine a little four-year-old boy. Imagine a parent who was watching that little boy and the little boy was trying to do a jigsaw puzzle or an exercise. And, and the parent would go, oh, you're stupid. Oh, look at that. You're not doing it right. You're, not, you're just not doing it right. Oh, look, that was the wrong thing. Do you think that little boy would be doing well? Mm. You wouldn't. No. As opposed to the mum who said, oh, you're getting it. You're, it's really great. You know, you, you were close. Maybe just try and shift it around a little bit. But you're doing really well. Which, li which mother is going to help the little boy mm. do their best? Mm. It's the second one. Yeah. And it's the same with us. If we have a self-compassionate encouraging, affirming voice in our head, rather than the harsh, perfectionistic, we're going to do better. Mm. Because what we want to do is deconstruct the belief that the bully voice, the perfectionistic voice, is going to help us get the, the part. It's not. It's not. Mm. There are a whole lot of things outside of our control. Yeah. We can do the work. We can do the preparation. Mm. We can be the best we are. We can be the most self-compassionate we are. 
but whether we get it or not, it's really outside of our control. Yeah, it really is. So it's also, would you say it's um, giving yourself permission, giving yourself the permission to be the best that you can be. And, and as, yeah. we, as we've all seen in, in the creative industries, uh, be it a piece of art, music, theatre, film, sometimes it's the, the things that aren't perfect that are the most interesting yes. that invite you into the world. Yes. Because when you've, yeah. Hmm sometimes find that when everything is so perfect, there's nothing for the audience to do. No. There's nothing no. to no. do. And, and I think it, it, some of those things that kind of easier to understand in kind of music or even art, but even in, in acting um, and in the performance industries, recognising that the imperfect often produces the, the, the best art. Mm, more interesting, mm. yeah. And all, I mean, this would go to, through to crew people as well, mm. yes. um, responsible for a lot of safety. So they are often perfectionistic in their um, striving to make mm. sure that everything's yes. all right. So they could, I mean, that's a, that's mm. a, a very anxious way of being if you've, mm. if you've got that, uh, those unrelenting standards and yes. you're also responsible for a lot of people's mm. safety. Yes. Attention to detail mm. is different to perfectionism. Yes, yes. And I think some of us, thankfully, are wired to have great attention to detail. Yep. And, and that should be celebrated. I love the fact that there's people in my world that have great attention to detail. If I have a surgeon that is operating on me, I want him <laughs> or her to have great attention to detail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a difference between that and this harsh, unrelenting unrealistic voice in our head. Mm. That's the perfectionism. Mm. And it's the compassion that we need mm. to, to, yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. We do hope that, we hope that you found it useful. A huge thank you for sharing your knowledge, expertise, time. And we would love to thank again the Actors Benevolent Fund of New South Wales, without whom this series would not be possible. Um, if you have any further questions for Dr Julie Crabtree, you can wall them through to us at info at equityfoundation.org.au and we will endeavour to get them answered for you. Um, keep your eyes peeled. We have more uh, events in this series coming up. Keep your eyes peeled on our Facebook page and through the e-bulletin um, and our website. Thank you again. That's it for us today. Thank you.